Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we are positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I am super jazzed to be talking to Liza Rader all about arousal and working dogs, working breeds. Um, Liza is a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner, a second-generation Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever person, and a specialist in high-energy, high-drive sporting breeds. Um, so their training is full of wild child dogs, those with big feelings and challenging behaviors. They bring together extensive experience and generational knowledge in high-drive gumdog breeding and husbandry with education in modern science-based training practices. Um, so I hope everyone just from that little intro can already tell why we are so excited to be talking to Liza. Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. All right. So um, as I warned you beforehand, we are going to jump into a science highlight, and then we're going to talk all about arousal. So this week, I read the paper titled, How Do Seasonal Changes in Adult Wolf Defecation Patterns Affect Scat Detection Probabilities? And this was published in Bio One in December 2022, so about a year ago. Um, and it was written by Fabrice Roda and a bunch of other um, authors who all deserve recognition, but I cannot read all of those French names, unfortunately. Um, mostly because there's a lot of them, not just because they're French. So from the abstract to quote, wolves are currently recolonizing their historic range in France. The collection of scats is a widely used non-invasive survey method to monitor wolf population size. However, seasonal changes in wolf fecal de deposition patterns might affect the results of surveys. We used a detection dog and a camera trapping to compare wolf scat detectability during winter and the nursing season. We collected 113 scats deposited by adult wolves at 29 marking sites on forest roads in the Saint-Baume Saint uh, Regional Park, Provence, France. After partruition, the mean number of adult wolf scats increased by 160% inside the nursing territory and decreased by 80% outside of it. So to pause the quote for a moment, basically that means that while the adult wolves were raising and nursing young puppies, um, the scats um, right inside of that nursing territory increased by 160%, and then the ones that are further out, kind of more on the edges of the territory, decreased by 80%. To continue our quote, Around the time the pups are born, changes in fecal deposition patterns of adults make it easier to find scats around the wolf den, with an 87% probability per wolf marking site, and harder to find those scats outside of the nursing territory with just an 11% probability there. During winter, the chance of finding scats is equal, 38 to 40% per wolf marking site, inside versus outside the nursing territory. So again, to pause, basically that means that during winter when they don't have young puppies, you've got about an equal chance of finding scat at any given marking site. Um, if I'm getting all of these stats right, which uh, I think I am. <clears throat> Back to the quote. The combined use of a detection dog and camera traps allowed us to gather data on wolf defecation patterns non-invasively. Detectability of adult wolf scats during the nursing season is highly variable compared to winter scat winter due to seasonal behavioral changes affecting scat location. We conclude that surveys to collect samples and estimate wolf population size should be conducted exclusively during winter to avoid sampling biases. And then to move on to a quote later on in the article, they say, the use of a detection dog significantly improved wolf genetic, genetic monitoring and delivered up to a 99.6 time saving relative to monitoring by human trained observers. Um, and they then cited that from Rhoda et al. 2020. 
We calculated that during winter months, it was necessary to sample just 10 marking sites to reach a 99% probability of detecting wolf presence, regardless of the location of the marking site outside or inside the wolf pack nursing territory. We calculated that during the nursing period, the sampling of 20 marking sites was necessary to obtain a 90% probability of detecting wolf presence outside the nursing territory. In the nursing territory, the sampling of only three marking sites was sufficient to obtain a 99.7% probability of detecting wolf presence. When taking into account the potential overestimation of scat counts due to non-target species detected by the dog, the overall results were similar and the findings and conclusions of the study did not change. Capture heterogeneity, which is the difference in probabilities of finding scats from different individuals and its causes is an important consideration because it can lead to an underestimation of population size in capture-recapture models. Whew. So <laughs> there's a lot there, um, but really, really cool stuff. Um, I think to, you know, I encourage people to read this. It's a relatively approachable paper, um, but there are some specific caveats that we want to make sure that people keep in mind if they do go ahead and read this paper. So, you know, as always, this is one dog team. Um, so some of those probabilities of detection are going to vary from dog team to dog team. Um, you know, that's always something we've got to be thinking. And then I did notice this is one wolf pack in a pretty specific area that has no motorized traffic throughout the territory. Um, so there's a good chance that with a larger wolf pack or different, um, different prey species causing different changes in behavior from that wolf pack, you could end up with really different results. And, um, for example, my roommate here, Ellen, she studies wolves in the Katmai area up in Alaska, and these wolves are, have a really heavily marine diet. So they're actually packed really tightly into these super duper tiny territories all along these inlets and just like mow on sea otters. Versus, you know, you imagine like the really typical, and they're much smaller packs, like seven individuals in most cases, um, versus, you know, you can imagine some of these typical wolves in Yellowstone where they're bison specialists, or, you know, not just specialists, but bison, elk, mule deer. Um, those packs can get up to like 20 or even like 30 individuals, much wider ranging. So it'd be really interesting to like actually compare these results across different, different wolf packs, because I bet it would be really different, but we don't know. So to quote them, they brought up some of their own um, limitations. Because systematic genetic analyses of scats were not performed, we do not know if both sexes showed changes in fecal deposition patterns associated with the pup's birth, end quote. So basically what that means is, you know, they don't know if if you were to do genetic analysis during the nursing season, you know, it might be reasonable to hypothesize that you're getting more of the adult male out away from the denning area and more of the adult female closer to the denning area. So if you were doing analysis, you might conclude that there was only a male in the area when there's actually a female at home with the babies. Um, then they also added, quote, young wolves did not help the Neowise wolf pack provide food to the female as other wolf packs do, hence the defecation patterns may be different if one or more young wolves from a pre previous reproduction helped the breeding couple parenting the pups, end quote, which I think that's really important here as well. That's relatively atypical for a wolf pack in my understanding. Usually you've got various non-breeding sub-adults and young adults around helping raise the puppies. So the fact that this is really just like a nuclear family, like mom, dad, young of the year puppies. Yeah, I, you would expect kind of an, an extreme result here. Okay. And then um, to continue again, they had, they had a lot of really good, I liked that they, this paper, they had a lot of good um, 
caveats on their own. Uh, so I didn't have to come up with all of them. They were very uh, even, even-headed about the limits of their own study. So they also said to quote, wolves in our study used forest roads and crossroads for scent marking, but no surveys were conducted off-road. So during the winter, these wolves used main road, main forest roads to travel fast and far across their home range at night. As revealed by camera traps, wolves of the breeding pair strongly avoided the main forest roads during the nursing period and selected secondary trails in forested areas. Um, then they continued, one must keep in mind that our sampling designs design should have taken into account off-road scat deposits. Thus, it is evident that only a fraction of all the available feces had been collected, which could be a source of bias. So lots of limiting factors here, but I think, you know, the big takeaway is if you want to be looking at a species that has really intense parenting behaviors, you may need to take that into account when you're thinking about how you're surveying. That would be the, like, too long didn't read of that one. So... Yeah. Anyway, Liza, do you have anything you wanted to uh, comment on with that before we jump into arousal? So for anyone who's not super familiar, like where I'm coming from with this, like my education background, not at all in the sciences. I'm almost entirely an arts and humanities background. And just the thing that strikes me listening to that is just how genuinely profound it is that a species who has co-evolved with us, like these species that has Mm co-evolved with us, they have shaped our society. They've shaped who we are as humans. And we have fundamentally shaped them, collaborating yeah. with us to work on a conservation project for their own ancestor. It is it is genuinely profound. Yeah, it is really, really cool. And yeah, gosh, yeah, I love this yeah, sort chills, of stuff. Chills, chills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want to help support this podcast and meet your learning goals as a conservation detection dog handler? Then sign up for our Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you get to support this podcast and earn the perks of asking our guests questions and joining monthly get-togethers online. At higher levels of support, you get even more perks. At kind of the highest level, this includes a private 30-minute coaching call with me over video chat once a month to go over your training goals with your dog in detail. Depending on your level of support, patrons also get to access a book club and group coaching calls each month. You can see details on all of those tiers uh, on our Patreon website. Depending on... Oops. There's really no better way to show your love for what we do while also furthering your own career in a flexible, self-directed way. Since starting our Patreon, we've had the absolute joy of watching several of our members go from excited amateurs to paid professional handlers with their dogs. We couldn't be more proud of them, and it's such a joy to share knowledge with this amazing community. Join us at patreon.com slash canineconservationists. Okay, so I think... If we're, yeah, let's jump into these arousal dogs, um, or, or this this conversation of arousal. So why don't we start out with like, you know, as always, we got to have a working definition of arousal for this conversation. I think, you know, we talk about this sort of stuff a lot on the podcast, but you know, we got to, we got to make sure we're all on the same page. So do you, have those, a, do you have a definition you like? Yeah, it's one of those things that can be infinitely complicated, but I think the <laughs> yeah. most accessible and helpful definitions is the most most simple which is the level of nervous system activation in the body at any given moment yeah and so when we talk about high arousal we talk about dogs who tend to sort of live in the higher end of that spectrum where they have ability to go higher than others um my duck toller gets up in the morning and he is 
stoked about life every single morning. He's happy. He's in a moderately high arousal every single morning when he wakes up in the morning. That is not the case for a lot of dogs. A lot of dogs are pretty <laughs> low key in the morning, right? Um, so they're all a little different. And it's also really important to note that it's all morally neutral. So we tend mm-hmm. to talk about arousal or hyper arousal. There's just arousal that's inappropriate for human usage. Mm-hmm. And that can be problematic for the dog when they try to live in our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense, I think. Um, yeah, there's this part of me that's like, well, but, but like, it can't be like maladaptive for them or like feel bad, right? Like, yeah, just, in, I mean, in the way that anything can be maladaptive, right? Like, like just yeah. like, a, you know, a person with an anxiety disorder has, has maladaptive <laughs> arousal issues. Um, but at its core, arousal as a concept is mm. morally neutral. Whether or not it's helpful is a different con- idea. Gotcha. But yeah. there's definitely, I think, a push, especially in the sort of the pet world, to, always be lowering, always be tampering, like tamping down um, mm-hmm. this feeling that it's, you know, there's such thing as, as the dogs being too much. Yeah. I, 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 I kind of am uncomfortable with that. Yeah. 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 Well, we were, we were hinting at this before we pushed record and then I was like, all right, I'm actually going to save this thought. Like, you know, I remember, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, when I first got Barley, and also today is Barley's 10th birthday, so everyone sing happy birthday quietly to yourself in the car. Um, <laughs> um, it, when I first got him, I had so many days of, like, it being, like, 11 p.m. and this dog still, like, bringing me, you know, like, shoes or, like, I remember he brought me pieces of paper, like, picked up, like, flat pieces of paper to bring to me for fetch. And being like 11 p.m. just sitting on the floor and like crying, being like, what have I done bringing this dog home? I love him so much. And I have no idea what I was doing. And I was working four tens at the time at an animal shelter. So I was like getting up and running him seven miles every morning before like a 7 a.m. shift. Um, I like quit rock climbing because of him because I was like, I can't go to the rock gym uh, (laughs) after work. And anyway, I like thought I fixed all of that. Like, I was just like, oh, yeah, now that barley is like a seasoned, you know, seasoned fine wine, uh, that's just not a problem we have anymore. And again, this this man has turned 10 years old today, and we have had a week. You know, I mean, honestly, this whole term, like, you know, I'm a first-term PhD student, and I'm still kind of getting used to managing two high-drive, high-arousal high working dogs uh, with all of that. And I am realizing that, like, oh my God, both of my dogs could be labeled high arousal. And I don't think I would have said that to you a year ago when we were like living out of a van and we were like, Mm -hmm. we were like their lifestyle just managed them so well. And like, it was all built so seamlessly into my lifestyle. I don't think I would have told you, I don't think I would have labeled my dogs high arousal a year ago. And like, it's, it's so situation dependent, which I know is like something you think about a lot too. Yeah. It's, it's super, super, um, environment specific and person specific it gets very subjective and that's why like mm-hmm. the the you know critical theory student in me gets very uncomfortable when we start getting very prescriptive about yeah. what cap like what what bucket are we putting the border collies in versus like versus the show line border collie like like it just gets infinitely complicated and of course none of this is something that you can like pour into a beaker and study 
No, so it's all descriptions no. of what we're seeing. We cannot ask the dog how they feel. And so we're, we're very much labeling what we're seeing. Um, but it's also important to point out that, so arousal is different than drive, yeah. which is like, talk about something that could just be like an entire encyclopedia of everybody's different theories yeah. about what drive well, and is. One other that I had written down for us was energy level. Exactly. Yeah. Arousal, drive, <laughs> energy level, all kind of different. They all feed off of each other, right? So that nervous yeah. system activation, if you don't have the higher nervous system activation, the energy level, like at certain point, like the energy level and the nervous system activation are like kind of the same thing, but yeah. there are dogs with really, really high energy who don't get that high. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I know any dogs that I would call high energy, but not high arousal. Cause I know, I know plenty that are high arousal but not high drive and i would say that like when i'm meeting my dog's needs really appropriately i would not necessarily label them high arousal mm -hmm. um but I'm, I, I don't know if i know any dogs that are high energy but not i not met high some <laughs> yeah i'm just, just like like i think of um like so years ago i had border collies and they were they were working farm stock and their father was just one of the, one of those border collies that just like there's a million stories about, right? Where he would like yeah. you'd be like, "Kido, go get the sheep," and he'd be like, "Cool," and then just you could just finish having breakfast, and he'd just go do that. Um, oh my god! And he was so level headed and so steady, and you'd see like his girlfriend, who was also <laughs> lovely, beautiful, little, much more of like a trialing kind of typical. Stucky, mm -hmm. stucky, stucky, scary border collie, and she yeah. was like she had big feelings all the time, and she was like moving and like very kind of frenetic, and <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. their kids were like that, and he was just like steady, and yeah. stuff would happen. He'd be like, "Oh yeah, cool, someone arrived, whatever." Could he work all day? Absolutely, like mm -hmm. all day. But you know, he didn't have that extra like spark plug going on right yeah explosion of yeah he wouldn't vibes. be that like that sparkly dog that you would pick out at like an agility trial and be like where did yeah. you get that dog oh um, man and this is how we get ourselves into trouble because the dogs that are like really driven and actually like mm -hmm. sarah starting recently said like instead of drive why don't we just say tenacity Oh, I love tenacity. That's like, that was the, one of the top words I like wrote and circled when I was like writing out, like, what am I looking for when I was uh, yeah. finding young Niffler, who is doing a very good job of pretending to be like a, a slug dog in the background right now. He's like, just in case anyone <laughs> is not noticing, I have not had activities today. Yeah, I would very, like everyone to know that I'm doing a very it. good job of sleeping and I'm going to roll over and just make sure you know. <laughs> Every now and then he's like, Have you, everyone's noticing that I'm being good? Yeah, okay, good. Um, but yeah, like, when I say drive, mm -hmm. a, a clearer word for that is tenacity. Because mm -hmm. right, we, we can go down the rabbit's hole of different drives and what everybody means. Yeah. But let's just say, let's just say we're going to, we're going to, it's got a purpose. It's like focused at something. Like it is that, that willingness and ability to push through adversity to get to what they want. Yeah, yeah. In its most simple terms. So, so there's certainly dogs who are very, very high energy and really high arousal and don't have particular feelings about getting to go and do a thing and really won't push through stuff. Mm -hmm. And then again, like I work with all these sporting dogs in pet homes, and the amount of times I've been like, well, they have heard, you know they're trying to steal all my dish towels. So I put all the dish towels on the table, on the counter. And I'm like, were they on the counter? And they're like, 
Yeah, they were on the counter. Wow. Yep. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was a good thought. It was, you know, we, <laughs> had uh, we tested it and we can now reject it. You know, this is all part of the scientific method. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, and, and, and like, I think we talk about this a lot in the working dog world where like, I think mm, I'm going to get myself in trouble with what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, <laughs> like, this is so common with Mallies where we get these Mallies that like, yes, have a ton of drive, but aren't necessarily like environmentally sound. But if you get them amped enough and you like tap into that arousal enough, they will walk through fire for what you're asking them for. And I think sometimes that's a good thing in the working dog world. Like to be honest, like that's something we look for. It's something we ask for. It's something we kind of need. I think there's like, a balance to be had there kind of ethically for myself as far as like making sure that my dog is genuinely comfortable and confident and actually has the skills to execute what I need. Um, but yeah, I mean like arousal can certainly be part of that picture to get a dog to do something that like they don't have the confidence to do generally. And that that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's a tricky thing to think about ethically. I think it is. And it's also just a, it's an important thing to consider as a handler because they do dumb shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do not make good choices when they are, like, really, really over-roused and just, like, hyper-focusing on what they want. Mm-hmm. And it can be very easy, especially in my experience, especially in the sporting breeds, to mistake confidence and skill and think that's what you're working with. And actually what you have is arousal and drive. Yes. And, and you, you want both. All, well, yeah, you want like all four ultimately, but two of them are things that you really have to build. And I would rather have a confident, skillful dog with no drive. Yes. Like, because um, the, 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 it's the skill and the ability that you've built over time that keeps yeah. them from doing the things that end their career. Like, yeah. I just always, I always think of this. I have a, like, a, my, my duck toller biscuit, love him to bits. He's phenomenal dog. He's a stellar little machine in the field. And he is got drive and arousal like coming out of his ears. Like he is so much dog. And I've got one video of him doing a retrieve where it's in some fairly high cover on like some marshy land. Mm-hmm. And the toy goes over a bunch of fallen logs and I release him off the line and he goes down the bank and he goes over the first log and then is not looking where he's going. You can see the video. He's looking where he's going, not what he's doing Mm -hmm. and goes chest first into the next one. You can hear it. You can hear the wind get knocked out of him. (laughs) Full, like fully falls on his face, gets up, gets going gets a bumper, comes back, delivers it. Good boy. Good boy. Oh, he was sore. He was yeah. real sore. <laughs> like, oh, I know yeah. he was too amped to make good choices in that scenario, and he didn't have the skill to use his body properly when he was that amped. Yeah. You know, you live and learn. That's how we learned he didn't have the skill mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. But, yeah. That, you know, these are the situations that we can get into if we just rely on their excitement level and their tenacity to get to go do the thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, but I think there is a lot of tendency in, like, the working dog world to look for these dogs that have such kind of off-the-charts level of arousal and drive and energy. Um, You know, we're really often looking for all three of those being, like, up to the max. And then using that to not need to train the skills and the confidence. Um, and, and, and like, sometimes that really bums me out and stresses me out for the people, uh, for the dogs mostly. Um, and then there is also a part of me that like, you know, like the Brene Brown part of my brain that is like, well, you know, the handlers only have so much skill and so much time in the day. And like these dogs do need a home. So it's better that those sorts of dogs get, you know, adopted by XYZ organization and go into this job. And like, you know, those dogs are probably happier there than they would be just about anywhere else. And like, I'm not going to indict the handlers for not being as big of a dog training nerd as I am, you know, and, and like both of those parts of my brain exist at the same time. There's yeah. And like, yeah. so like I come out of the breeding world as well. And, and there are very different conversations that we have about dogs that currently exist. And, and there's different conversations with as trainers. Mm-hmm. Breeding conversations are a whole other thing. They're both dogs that don't exist yet. Yeah. And so that's a whole other rabbit hole of like, what is the most ethical way to be producing dogs for whatever the niche is, whatever that is. Um, And, you know, how much are, what are the things that I'm willing the dogs that I produce to have to put up with? What do I think is ideal for their needs being met? How do I set them up for success with that? That's different than, (laughs) Oh, we've got this dog in a shelter or we've got this dog who's been, uh, you know, been donated by someone or we've got this dog that we've went and bought yeah. who is just running hot mm-hmm. and we're going to work with what we have. We're making choices as a handler and be like, I know I don't want to deal with X, Y, and Z. I don't want to deal with having to light a dog up. I don't want to have to deal with working really hard for that motivation. Yeah. I am much more comfortable installing bricks. Yeah, that's me. I am way more comfortable installing brakes than I am building motivation. Mm-hmm. That's just my learning history, right? And so yeah. that's going to inform the choices I make, the dogs that I seek out. Uh, and I think for a lot of the stuff like that I do, like I would rather have a touch too much dog yeah. than a touch too little, you know, because like I feel comfortable being like, okay, I need to, you know, get up at six in the morning, you know, five in the morning and go for a seven mile run with my dog before I can go to, to work. You know, I, I mean, at the time I wasn't a working dog person, so I don't know what I was doing being so dedicated to that, but you know, good on me, I guess. Um, I would rather have to do that than have a dog that I am like begging to work or mm-hmm. having to make the call of like, I only have so much room and so much money. So if this dog can't do the job, he, you know, he or she can't stay. Yeah. And like, again, so most of the dogs that I work with are these kinds of dogs who have found Mm -hmm. themselves in pet homes. And that is not true for most people. Right. Yeah. The, the problem with these guys is like you said, they're the dog of the agility trial. You see, they're like, 
they are. They're kind of like, they're sparkly. I always yeah. call it like the George Clooney effect. Like if you've ever met someone who's met someone as famous, famous as like George Clooney or like Angelina Jolie or something like that, they're like, oh my God, they were like the most amazing person I have ever met. Like they will yeah. just gush and gush and gush. And a lot of these really high drive, high arousal, they also tend to be really smart, really intelligent, yeah. really just like aware of stuff that a lot of dogs are not aware of. I have friends who are freaked out by Marley. Um, Like, I have friends who are like, I think that might be a person trapped in a dog's body. Like, he weirds me out because he's just, like, too calculated. He's got, like, major clever girl vibes. Um, And, yeah, he's also, he, like, I get asked all the time where he's from, which is hilarious because he's from a shelter in Denver and then, like, I, I did manage to track down his old owner and he was like, I got him at like a Walmart <laughs> parking lot. <laughs> he was six weeks old in Texas. And I was like, all right, sometimes you get lucky. <laughs> like, who knows? That doesn't tell us anything about breeding decisions. He's just living his best life though. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's got that sparkle and like, yeah, I, I, I I've experienced like people having that, like they, they get magnetized to him. Oh my um, God. Yeah. And it's cool. Well, but then there's always this like conversation like, uh, Barley was with me at the FDSA camp this year. Um, and, uh, I did most of my work with Niffler and Niffler, Niffler does not get that response out of people. Um, he's beautiful and smart and like does a good job, but he doesn't have that same, like, yeah, that like George Clooney effect. Um, and uh, gosh, where was I going with? I'm not just trying to brag about Barley. I had a point, but I've lost it. So okay, I guess we're just bragging about, about Barley. It's his birthday. He should be bragged about it. Is, yeah, it is his birthday. <laughs> But yeah, it's funny. And there, yeah, there was one other. There was a, there was probably more than one, but there was a there was a Mally there that like every time that Mally went up and worked, everyone came like, around and was like, "Where's that dog from?" Uh, yeah. And there there was a couple other Mallies there that were also nice, but like everyone was asking about the one. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, as as a handler, like regardless of what you are, what the niche is that you're trying to fit with your dog, if it's you know I want a dog who can go can across with me three times a a week. Or if it's a dog that we're going to go do wolf conservation with. It's really a pick your poison. Yeah. Right. Like there's, it's very rare that you get the, the dog that just like slots into someone's life. Absolutely. Perfectly. Yeah. I have one in my program right now. And I like emailed his breeder and was like, Hey, so he's in your breeding program. Right. 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 <laughs> Please. Right. Him. Right. Right. Yeah. It's perfect. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I remembered fun. my point. Um, oh, wow. That's yeah. Um, I remember my point when people come up and ask me about barley. Um, I, 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 and the reason I brought up FDSA is I think about this a little bit less when I'm in like FDSA land, um, for anyone who's not like on the dog nerd side of things, this is a fancy dog sports Academy. Um, so it's, major dog nerd people like people who do dog sports and spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on dog sports routinely um i don't worry about this as much when i'm talking to them but like i sometimes i go out and like train my dogs in public and people Mm -hmm. will come up and ask um and you know it's always like yeah i i i know he's got that that george clooney factor but like do you really want a dog like him um and you know that's not necessarily like it's kind of a dick conversation to have when someone's just like complimenting you about your dog so i'm not saying i like give people a lecture every time they approach me in a park but it is you know when friends tell me how much they love my dogs um Mm -hmm. do you have any idea what goes into this yeah do you want to dog sit them for a week and then decide if you really really want them 
it, it's hard. It's hard because yeah. they're so lovely, and you want you want to talk them up. Yes, but yeah, you know it is. Yeah, it's it's all about fit, and yeah. and and the sacrifices that you as the owner handler are willing to make, which is I think kind of the point that you are you are moving towards as well. Yeah, like what are like there are things that I don't want to deal with, like the way that border collies stress makes me angry. I do not like it. (laughs) So I love other people's border collies. Like I adore border collies. I lived with two for many, many years. I adore them. Never again. Right. I love the, I love the sporting dog. Like I'm going to explode all over everything and flail and scream at stuff and bolt. Cool. I can deal with that. Like that does not stress me out. I'm like, really? You having a tough one today? The dog's like doing somersaults. I'm like, okay, cool. Right. But that, like, that I'm going to get up on my toes and get in your personal space. Like, do not. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. It's a lot about just knowing yourself as a person and accepting that you can't accept everything. Were you hanging out with Niffler, Niffler recently? <laughs> um, yeah. No, totally fair. And I, yeah, I have the same, like, I don't like dogs that get vocal when they get really excited. Um, mm, yeah. See, the toddler like scream. That. I think, and I think the toddler f- screaming is funny. I'm like, really? 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 Yeah. Well, even like baying, I like can't. And, and I have a lot of friends who have hounds, and they're like, "I just love the baying." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? It's the worst." Um, yeah, yeah, it's knowing what you're what you're up for, and uh, yeah, I mean, and it's funny too. I was recently dog sitting a pair of rough collies. I think when we first met, that's I was still there, and um, the that ha- that owner also has a border collie. And that border collie is the sort of border collie that I think would turn me off of the breed. She's lovely. She's an excellent agility dog. Um, but yeah, gunshot goes off 17 miles away and she will bolt back to the car no matter where you are on a hike. So you can't really take her hiking. Um, she doesn't, it's, you know, it's classic border collie crap behavior. Like she doesn't guard stuff like resource guardian like a typical way but she controls space she gets mm-hmm. concerned about everyone else's decisions if the other dogs are trying to go through doorways she has to like go in and you know it's just like ugh, ugh. I, yeah yeah and and the other thing again so like going back to like picking your poison and and you know luckily for us there's like hundreds of dogs that we can pick from and then all mm-hmm. of the mixes of and so, like, I had a rough collie as well. Um, he passed away in the spring. And I used to take him with a friend who's an Aussie person when she was talking to people who were thinking about getting an Aussie. And we take her mm. lovely like, Aska Aussie, and he would be like, throw the ball, throw the ball, throw the ball, throw the ball, throw the ball. Like, I don't care who you want, throw the ball. Like, someone, please entertain the dog. Mm-hmm. And the rough collie would be standing there. I'm... This sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. Getting his mane braided by little girls. <laughs> and you're like, oh, so you want a dog for the kids? Right. Hmm. I wonder which hmm. one might be better fit. Whereas yeah. for me, like, love him dearly. Miss him greatly. He was very boring. Yeah. I didn't get to do a lot of the stuff that I would really want to do with him. A large part of that was his temperament. Yeah. Right. Well, that's yeah, going back to these two rough collies and border collie. As much as I was just ragging on that border collie, if I had to take one of those three dogs, I would take her a hundred times over, even though she is the sort of border collie that would turn me off of the breed for at least at least a while. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, the rough collies are boring. 
And and yet they're one of the breeds that I recommend the most to people because I just think they're so, so special. Because most people want a boring dog. Most people who say they want a border collie or an Aussie actually, or actually even a German Shepherd actually want a rough Mm -hmm. collie or a smooth collie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And most people who think they want a Cocker need a Cavalier. And gosh, we got to figure out how to make some of these breeds with fewer health issues because like I wish, I think 90% of people should have a Cavalier. Oh um, my God! Yes, they are <laughs> angels. They are an- like genuinely angelic. Yeah. I- I've adored every single one I have ever met. Yeah, I've never met a bad one. Um, and you never see them in the shelter, and that's not because that's such a rare breed. It's because they don't go to shelters. Like, yeah, because the biggest problem behavior-wise that they have is that they piddle when they meet people. Yeah, yeah. Most and, of us well, can and, learn to live with that. Yeah, yeah. And their heart, but the, yeah, but then their hearts go out at like six. Um, yeah, or their brain is the wrong size, and etc. You know. Yeah, yep. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, we got we gotta yeah gotta get some cavalier outcross projects up and going somewhere. That's the functional dog collaboratives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. their, their rag. <laughs> that's not. We are not here to do, to do that. We're we're the wrong people to try to solve those problems. Because I mean, yeah. And uh, so I think about this a little bit because Niffler is intact and he was pick of the litter and like is the breeding prospect for the this program from his litter. And it's interesting because it's like he's so lovely and I do think he could be really successful. I say like he would be really successful in kind of your typical endurance athlete home. Like <laughs> he wouldn't be like a good pet dog period. But if you're like a mountain biker, downhill skier sort of household, he would be excellent at that. He doesn't have to be working the way that like Barley would be. But you you know, I still think a lot about like, does the dog really, does the world really need more dogs like that? Because the dog freaks like you and me keep creating these sorts of dogs. Yeah. We buy them because they're beautiful and they're magnetic and they are fun. And then they ruin our lives Mm -hmm. (laughs) to varying levels of bad. And whether or not we enjoy said ruining is, uh, is sort of up to us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. And there's like, there's just also so much privilege in it. Like when I think back to Barley, you know, on one hand, he was my first dog, and I was I was a year out of undergrad, so I was like what twenty three, um, and you know had all these things that like on paper could kind of be working against me. But I also like you know I had I had a good job. I was already a marathoner at that time. Like I, you know, I just and I had all the flexibility in the world. I didn't have kids. Like it, it was just like I would I. Yes, I chose to rise to the occasion in handling barley, but there was also just I, you know, I you were I'm able like, to do that. Yeah, I'm and a it, very able-bodied person, and like didn't have yeah, I wasn't like trying to go to night school or like take my kids to karate or whatever. Like I, I don't think I could handle barley and kids. I, I genuinely don't think I could. Yeah, no, my my, my grandmother was a breeder for. 36 years. And one of her little rules was, um, no puppies to people who are going to have kids the next few years or had anyone, any kids under the age of eight, because 
she was she was a mom like she she was like no one should be doing that it's, a, no. Not, it's no fun for anyone especially but, um, with a toller like <laughs> and like for me like again um as a trainer when i'm most likely to recommend a rehoming situation is where the environment isn't set up for the dog so mm-hmm. for example you know a hump point retrieve breed in a downtown urban core who has no access to space to move his body physically without constant triggers. There's only so much that can be helped then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people could be doing everything right and trying their best and care so, so much. But if you don't have the ability to get him out and get him running pretty much every day Mm -hmm. success is going to be very limited because his care needs are so high yeah well and one of the things you talked about in the the lovely webinar you did which um remind us all of the name of it and where to find it yeah the webinar is called understanding exercise um it is available you can find it um on my website or just through like the instagram link and stuff like that um and it is sort of taking the idea of um the dog needs more exercise, right? Um, and actually breaking it down into like a usable functional framework so that we can talk to each other more clearly about what we're doing for the dog. We can assess what's going on and what's working, what's not. And then we can change things. I always think of it like the, is like exercising with a scalpel. So like understanding what is the yeah. functional piece of what I'm doing and then being able to go do that. So like I was saying before we started recording, my past week has kind of exploded and it's my dog's mm-hmm. on I think like day like 14 of just like really not getting enough to do. He's about ready to build a pipe bomb in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and on very limited energy and time, I was able to take him to the one spot. This is field. We call it the coyote field because it has one very angry coyote that lives in it that we try to yeah. avoid all the time. Um, <laughs> and it's, so it's got a, it's, got a ton of animal odor it has got a lot of um really natural grasses so part of it is mowed but most of it is not um it's surrounded by woods uh there's a little stream and stuff um and it's far enough away it's in a big park but it's far enough away on the corner of the park that like basically nobody knows it exists so like you see there's me and there's one person who has german shepherds who i'm sure is a dog sport person because she's got cool crates in her car and we like see each other from (laughs) corners of the field and we're like yeah you stay over there and i'll stay over here so we never cross paths and i'm able to like very precisely give him the thing that is going to be most effective yeah so he did some memory retrieves and then he sniffed all the animal odor for 20 minutes yeah that's all i had all the energy I had, all the time I had, and trying to find the the most effective way to use the resources that we have to meet these really, really high needs. Yeah. Well, and I love, you know, just going back to, to this idea of like figuring out what they need, like physically and mentally, and not just saying like they need more exercise. Like after your webinar, I kind of sat down and I looked at like, okay, what have my dogs gotten in the last week? And it was like, oh, literally all they've gotten for the last week is off-leash trail runs, which 
I think are just high speed decompression walks. Cause they are like, you know, I'm running like a 10 minute mile. So the dogs are like, they're sprinting forward and then like stopping and sniffing and like getting to quarter and follow the little trails and then sprinting again. So I think as far as like the only activity they get, it's probably a pretty good one. And we rotate through four different parks, but it was like, Oh, we haven't done any brain games. We haven't done any scent work training at all. Like we haven't done anything to just like work their brains other than, you know, again, like getting to follow animal trails and those sorts of things out in the woods. Um, So I've been, yeah, like since watching your webinar, I'm now like, okay, every morning for their breakfast, we're doing like some shaping or like, you know, cue discrimination or like something uh, you know, either within like their physical therapy. So like Barley is working on like doing like nice controlled sidesteps and stuff, which is nice. Cause it's like both good for his physical therapy and like mentally really hard for him. And Niffler is working on holding like a really nice, precise freeze alert. Um, and it's like, okay, every morning for breakfast, like, yes, this takes five minutes per dog. And that feels like a lot when I am like trying to make it to class on time, but like I can do that. And then I also, I'm very excited about this. I got a, um, one of the extenders for, um, a bike so that now I can bike shore with Niffler. Cool. Um, And it, it is, it almost feels, it feels spiritually similar to fetch as far as like, it is so high arousal. It is so just like, go, go, go. Like you're just running fast, but you know, and I like this is where, and I'd love to like maybe pull on this thread a little bit, like the the fetch discourse. <laughs> um, uh, I agree that like, <laughs> you know, if all you're ever doing is going to the park for fetch for an hour a day every day, and that's the only thing you're getting your dog, that's probably problematic. But you know what? Sometimes it is really nice to be able to just hook my dog up to a bike, and I can just sit there and tell him right and left for 15 minutes and then I come home and like, A, his nails are trimmed. Um, Beautiful. (laughs) And B, he's done. You know, he's done for the day. And like, I don't, (laughs) again, the Brene Brown part of my brain is like, I don't think people are being morally wrong for like relying on fetch or bike drawing or whatever it is. Ideally, occasionally, and part of like a comprehensive exercise plan. So what is is your thought on the fetch discourse? (laughs) Okay. So hilariously. So I, I am, you know, basically I'm like, I'm like 95% opinions and like, I have like big feelings about politics and like, oh, on, on. and my most controversial opinion and the thing that I get yelled at on the internet, the most over is my fetch opinion, which is, so when I talk about fetch, so you have to understand, like I grew up with, with retrievers who all did hunt tests and working certificates and stuff like that. So it was very important for us to differentiate between fetch and retrieving. So when I say fetch, I mean like a, what we used to use before chucket sticks were invented, a tennis racket or just throwing the ball (laughs) or a chucket and throwing the toy onto a surface that the animal can see while they run for it. They get it. They bring it back. They put it down. We do it again. So that repetitive Mm -hmm. back and forth fetch. Having had a lot of dog toilers and two border collies who were, like lived and died by fetch. Um, and then having had experience of having a, having a duck toller who's very, very closely related to those other duck toilers who is not allowed to play fetch because his mm-hmm. brain melts. Um, and then also like I used to work in a rehab vet clinic, like my sort of thing is like, fetch is bad. is like my little like, mm-hmm. 
but there's cav- there's so many caveats around that, which is yeah. that specific game of back and forth fetch, really high risk for back injury, really high risk for shoulder mm-hmm. injury, that kind of stuff. Um, again, you, you're in retrievers this long, you hear <sighs> Biscuit's full litter mate shattered his tibia playing um, fetch when he was 10 months oh. old. We've had dogs who... Um, like punctured their throat. We've had dogs that have punctured their stomachs, like really horrific injuries that make my blood curdle a little bit. And especially with like herding and sporting breeds, like they see that arc of movement and they get really excited and they grab it and they bring it back and put it down. It just goes over and over and over again. That does not mean that they don't need times that they just like go ham and push their body really, really hard and run really, really fast. It also does not mean that throwing things for the dog is bad. Yeah. So like, I, I really think that like I work with almost exclusively hunt point retrieve breeds. So your setters and pointers and first hunting dogs. And <laughs> they kind of break a lot of rules. Like they need to run. Yeah. It is a requirement of their care that they get time to just bomb in a natural environment and sprint. Mm-hmm. It is not decompressing for them. No. <laughs> yeah, it does put some wear and tear on their body. Mm-hmm. It is required for their brain to function properly, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about that as, again, someone who like runs marathons. And, like, does, you know, my brain needs a lot of that yeah, to function. Yeah. And, yes, I have injuries. And I my knees are probably going to hurt more at 50 than mm-hmm. if I just walked yeah. instead. But I can't. And, like, I, I mean, I am the human equivalent of a border collie. Like, I, my dad just sat me. Well, he didn't sit me down because he's in Wisconsin and I'm in Oregon. But he just called me and was like, I'm just really worried about your schedule and the amount of activity that you have in your schedule. And like, I'm worried that you're not focusing enough on your PhD and like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dad, it's, it's fine. I'm like getting A's and everything. And like, it's, I'm doing really well, but like to someone whose brain doesn't really work that way. He was like, quite alarming. And our dogs are the same. Like, I think anyway. the dogs that you and I traffic in, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similarly. And it can actually it can be um it can be disconcerting for us as guardians. It can also be really hard for uh trainers who aren't used to working with them um for a variety oh, of reasons. Yeah. Either we might like what I see a lot is dogs who are coping with pain and chronic anxiety and chronic fear and chronic stress by sprinting. Like you wouldn't think that mm-hmm. dogs would deal with pain by running really hard. They do. Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to feel alive. <laughs> sometimes you just have to like sprint until you bear- can barely stand and then you'll feel better. Like I've apparently, mm-hmm. so Biscuit tells me. Um, the now, race, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also make sure that they are getting a lot of time to decompress. And I often have to go in and teach them how to do that. Mm-hmm. So I usually put them on a really long, long line and take them to a pretty boring field and like, teach them how to sniff stuff properly. Mm-hmm. And they're like, why would I do that? I'm like, well, cause there's tripe treats on the ground. First of all, come on. Yeah, come on. Yeah. And once we can get them doing that and then we can balance it, 
like I still want them to have a couple of opportunities a week to rip because they have yeah. to expel that energy. Yeah, they have and to then, learn how to do the other half, but that doesn't eliminate yeah. the need to do the thing. You're never going to make a really, really lovely, well-bred German short-haired pointer into a bench line cocker spaniel. Mm-hmm. It is not possible. Yeah. That's just, that would just be witchcraft. Like we cannot do that. Yeah. But I like to do a ton of retrieving with the dogs by which I mean like active field training, even for my pet dogs where I'm doing things like throwing the toy or even just sometimes I'll do it with food. If I don't Uh like, especially if I've got a handler who doesn't have the time or inclination or skill to teach a really nice retrieve, I'll just use food, Mm -hmm. throw a meatball, have them sit and mark the meatball, throw the meatball into the really high cover, turn them around, walk them back 30 feet, have them find the mark again and send them out to the meatball. Yeah. Doing that three times gets you way further ahead than 10 minutes of back that back and forth fetch Mm -hmm. because they get that explosive action and then they get to bring their head down and sniff and search. And we're actively then teaching that sniffing and searching that they have such a hard time cooling their brain down enough to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. I had like yesterday was, I think I had meetings starting at 7am that went until 8pm. It was like one of those days where I was like eating every single Mm -hmm. meal, like during meetings and I had like a half hour. So while my food was in the microwave, I like went out and hid two scat samples and then after like let them cook while I was eating and then uh, like let the odor disperse and then went and grabbed each dog. And, you know, then as part of that, like for Niffler, I'm working on like actually giving him a pretty high energy reward for the first find to simulate then building that endurance of needing to get back and searching for that second one and using that as a way to like, I didn't have time to do an hour long search. So I tried to get him fatigued in between one and two so that then he could go and do number two. And then after number two, I took him to the backyard where we have like a foot of oak leaves and we practice like tug fetch discrimination, um, and throwing things into the leaves. So he was like, you know, bounding out and then having to like stop and sniff and like getting all of that. And, you know, each dog got like maybe 10 minutes and it wasn't enough for but sure. It's, given it's the deficit. use of time. It's an effective it, use of time. Exactly, yeah. what, it, what it's all about is understanding what is happening for the dog with each activity that we do. Yeah. And then using the elements that we have available to us, using all of those little tools in the toolkit as mindfully as possible to get yeah. the result that we want. Yeah. And like, as uh, Sarah Strumming, our Lord and Savior would say, <laughs> like, um, you know, watching what you're getting out of the dog after each of those activities. Cause you know, I often, it's always funny to me hearing people talking about sniffing as a way to calm your dogs down. I'm like, yes. It can be a calming activity, but like you can't, like my dogs get more amped about scent work and detection work. And like their barley in particular, his arousal is high while he is searching. That is very, very different from like moseying through the woods and checking out, um, checking out other odors. And for hunting dogs, like also like checking out prey animal odors can be really, really arousing. So, 
you really got to watch what you're getting out of your dog in the moment and afterwards. Like, are, and they, are they coming home and taking a good nap? Or are they coming home and they're still, like, pacing and whining and, like... And also understanding the nuance. So, like, one of the things that just, like, drives me up the wall about, like, dog training social media is just, <laughs> how, like, like, because of the nature of the algorithm that we all live and die by. And yeah, our the algorithm. <laughs> right. <laughs> we want to get stuff that's, like, punchy and clean. And there's a real push to make information very, very digestible. Mm-hmm. easy for people to who don't necessarily have an educational background on this kind of stuff easy to kind of understand and that works a lot of the time but because I have this really specific niche mm-hmm. inevitably what I get is dogs who are two and three and we thought we were doing everything right yeah. and it's exploding in our face and it's yeah. like yeah because sniffing is not sniffing is not sniffing is not sniffing mm-hmm and just because they don't, they like doing it and they seem to get a lot out of it does not mean it's good for them. And just because it works for most dogs does not mean it's going to work for them. Yeah. And it's all in the little nuances of how. So I, I get to take care of my friends, just gorgeous little Resmut Veda, who is like itty bitty. We don't know what she is. She's, she's, a, she's a little Resmut from the Yukon and she is hardcore girl in charge. She's like this little spitzy border collie something or other. And she was basically feral when she came into rescue. um, And she definitely loves to hunt. And for me, when I've started walking her, like I have nerve damage in my hand. Pulling me is not a thing that happens because Mm -hmm. I sustained pulling. I'll like at certain point, the hands stop working and then bad things happen. Like you, you Mm -hmm. can't, right whereas like the occasional tug i'm fine with like again it's a pretty strong tug but the duration can't handle yeah so i really had to teach her not to pull so she's got nine years of pulling history (laughs) and (laughs) what we realized is the issue was not the pulling of course because it's never the issue is never the pulling the issue is why we're pulling and she was so overwhelmed by the environment because she just wanted to hunt and hunt and hunt and hunt and hunt and so i've spent the last several months you know, a couple times a, a week, really focusing on teaching her to eat food at all, um, mm-hmm. be able to sniff and then disengage to be able to sniff and not hunt, right? Not be like sniff, but don't critter. Mm-hmm. You can observe if you see a squirrel, we're going to watch the squirrel, but you can't go and wind up trying to catch the squirrel because you're not going to catch the squirrel. And then you're just, your yeah. brain's going to melt and nobody's having a good time. And then if you hear a noise, you're going to have a panic attack. So like you can't oh. do that. So yeah. we've been working really, really hard on this. And she now, like I, I was walking the two dogs yesterday and I've got her on a flexi. I've got biscuit on a long line. So I've got this super high drive gun dog and I've got Veda who's just a hunting arousal machine. And they're, trotting along and they're sniffing and they like stopped and I was like talking to someone on my phone and they're like hanging out and wandering around that's what I'm kind of sniffing yeah her in the woods being like critter 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 where 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 those are not the same thing right and that's also not the same thing as when I throw a rabbit for lotus ball for her into the bushes and she goes and gets it and rips it open and eats the food yeah. 
all of these things are sniffing, searching, hunting kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you could also do just like a, a scatter. I'm like, yeah. Just, yeah. Which we, yeah. like, I, she was like, or I'm like not eating for an uh, essential oil. Uh, you know, like, yeah, yeah totally, do- totally different. Okay. So like, like, sniffing uh, is good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sniffing is calming. More like, detail, uh, please. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, so, okay. So I wanted to go back to kind of this idea of living with these dogs and kind of managing arousal, but like lowercase manage managing, like not, not upper. Like, Cause we talked a little bit about, I think sometimes people who are dealing with dogs that are a little bit too much, again, whether that's energy or drive or arousal or all three or two of the three, um, you know, they want to create, they want to do stationing games. They want to like, shape calmness and a there's so much nuance particularly in that third one like i know so many people who have kind of successfully trained the dogs to fake the you know the the dog's like i will lie here and i will do a chin rest Mm -hmm. and i uh, you know like the dog looks the dog's acting (laughs) oh yeah they're good actors and that is so um there's so much nuance in there and if you are not someone who is like a really big dog nerd like getting past that is borderline impossible so what can we do as owners handlers man you know who are feeling overwhelmed by the dog or you know for talking to someone else who is feeling overwhelmed by their dog what are some of the things that you think about as far as like living and managing a life with these sorts of dogs beyond what we've already talked about so there's a couple there's a there's a there's a i mean there's a million things um <laughs> yeah I could, I could probably talk about this for like a solid 16 hours straight um but there's a, there's a sort of few like key points. The first one is like, it's important for us as humans to establish our boundaries. And I say boundaries really specifically because boundaries are about my behavior, not about anybody else's behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. So things like I attention from me is not available when I am sitting here at my desk on my laptop, because that is how I'm teaching or I'm doing something like this. I am not available. Mm-hmm. So if you, or scream at me there's a crate here for you that you can be in if you jump on me i'm just gonna stand up like i have things that i will do to communicate that boundary to you like i'm not available right now yeah yeah I, I, you just saw me have to mute myself and tell niffler off because he was trying to crawl onto my chair with me <laughs> you don't whereas like perfect example i have a client who whose gsp will curl up on her lap with her head on her shoulder the whole day that she's working at her desk. And like, that works great for them, more power to them. Right. So boundaries, your own, and you know, they're about what I do, not about what the dog does. And that it not being about what the dog does is, is really, really important because our impulse as humans is to get in there and control all of the things. Mm -hmm. We're like, we want to control the dog's movement. We want to control how much the noise they're making. We want to put them in a crate. We want to put them on a leash. We want to put them in a downstay. We want, we just, we're like, just mm, stop. Yeah. Stop being too much. You are too much. You're exploding everywhere. Be less. Right. And we really want to like compress them. Yeah. And you'll see that like we, we shorten our leash. We mm. talk, talk more to them. We touch them more when they're starting to frustrate us. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, the number of times I've like put my hands on Barley's chest and been like, just stop. Stop. Yeah. We have all done Breathe. it. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm like, trying to 
hold someone who's having a panic attack. And you're like, yeah, I mean, and you I can't tell to calm down. It, it, it's the exact same problem. But the amount of times like, I've said this, like, can you please just be less? Yeah. Can there be less of you right now? Right? Yeah. So the problem with that is that one of two things is going to happen. Actually, one of three things. One, it's going to do nothing. That's the like the, le- the least common thing is that it does absolutely nothing. The other one is that for whatever reason, what we do is enough to absolutely terrify the dog. Really upset uh-huh. them. Yeah. And then they come either will come into themselves or the thing that I see the most working with the sporting dogs is they explode outwards. Right. Because you're like compressing, compressing, compressing. And I'm imagining like this little pressure cooker. Yeah. And then boom. And I was like, started to jokingly call this um, like splody feelings. Cause this is a very <laughs> typical gun dog thing where like border collies, as Sarah says, will have like stocky stereo bullshit. Like when they get yeah. are uncomfortable with something, they're like, I'm going to stare at it. I'm going to control it. And boom, right. <laughs> and then the gun dogs tend much towards like splody feelings, which is like, mm-hmm. I'm going to come up and muzzle punch you in the face, or I'm just going to sprint, or I'm going to do zoomies in your living room and knock over everything that you love. Or like, like it's just (laughs) feelings exploding everywhere. So we very effectively make the problem worse when we try to get in there and control by limiting freedom, limiting choices, limiting movement and getting in there and having conflict with them. Okay. So then what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I say constantly to people when I'm working with them is embrace the chaos. Mm-hmm. Like, Oof, you're a lot. Yeah. Right? Not can you be less, but oh, you're a lot. Okay. Yeah. I do a lot of like sitting back and getting out of the way as like Niffler and the cat are like chasing each other, you know, like on the couch, off the couch, under the couch, on top of you. Know, like, yeah. like, and like, I do like, if I'm seeing like, that, like, okay, I'm going to back up. Yeah, I've got tollers just flailing in my living room. I'm not walking into my living room <laughs> and going like, actually, you guys, like, because of because of my my rough collie had a back injury and stuff like that, like, dog play was is not allowed in my house. We have a yard mm-hmm. in the yard. And so I had to go, like, I can't go in and stop that. Because if I go in and stop that, I am going to get more of it. Yeah. Why don't I go open the freezer where the Kongs are kept? Yeah. Right. All of a sudden everyone's like, Hey, what's happening in the living, in the kitchen? And they're going to come trotting yeah. in. And now I've got an opportunity. I can give them a, a treat. Why don't I take them up back with a big handful of kibble and toss a big handful of kibble into the living room? Yeah. If with puppies who are starting to be just like overwhelming and too much, what I start doing is clicking and treating for feet touching the ground. Yeah. And I toss that food behind them. So they turn and get it, turn around and get it. And, yeah. Very quickly, what I'll get is a little taller puppy laying down, being like, "I'm awake, I'm fine, yeah, I'll go to sleep." And then, and then you can start treating them for laying down, and then you can go, oh, "Honey, would you like a sweet potato chew and a nap?" And they're like, "Maybe, I think so. Maybe I can yeah. do that." And you pick them up. And pick them <laughs> I'm just being like, instead of going like, "Dear God, you're screaming and flailing and biting at me," I'm going like, "Oh, do you want to chase a kibble?" Wow, you got it. That was so clever. Do you want to do it again? Yeah. Well, and I and love just, that specific one because it's like, okay, you have movement that needs to be expelled. So, like, we're feeding you and we're engaging you in a pattern and we're doing all these things that are, like, 
useful to ratchet arousal down while also meeting those movement needs. Like it's just such a beautiful, simple little way to do both things at the same time. It works like it works a treat, but it does take a certain amount of emotional regulation on our part, which is hard totally. um, because there's nothing that gets our arousal higher than just like puppy teeth sinking into your face. Right. Yeah. And so th- those are like the immediate, like what do we do in the immediate when the dog is just being like way too much? Soften, change the scenario, start reinforcing for the things that you like. They're doing mm-hmm. something you like, even if it's their feet are touching the ground. I like it when your feet touch the ground. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Great. Yeah. You're taking a breath in between barking. Like, yeah. Or just leaving. Like sometimes you, sometimes they're so aroused that you can't fix it. So like yeah. I've got a dog right now in the program who, if he gets to a certain level, the instruction is to leave the room, close the door, mm-hmm. let him burn out. We can't yeah. fix it in the moment because getting in there and trying to fix it will make it worse. Yeah. Right. And then, then we ought to look at the broader picture. So we've got, we talked about how all of these different elements of care that we have, like the amount of brain work that they're getting, the amount of, you know, time to like really stretch their body and like do the athlete thing. Cause they're athletes. Mm-hmm. And Another big part of that is rest. So a lot of these guys are bad at resting. And so a lot of the time I have to teach them to sniff. I have to teach them to rest. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're real mad about this. And almost always it really helps. So uh-huh. really making sure they're sleeping enough. They're resting. Like I try to give them like a full rest day once a week. So they are actually physically preparing their muscle and they're sleeping properly. And they were just doing calm, chill stuff. And then balancing things over the course of a week. So yes, if I think yes. my dog needs eight hours of off-leash exercise a week, that could happen twice a week, right? Like yeah. He could have four hours and then four hours. Yeah. That actually that actually works. Like, people do not believe me. That actually works. Yeah, you can do the weekend understand. warrior thing if your weekend warrior thing is enough. Yes. Um, like, Pick up a mountain. And, and by, by enough, I mean... Uh, I don't want to pick on a specific sport, so I'm going to list a couple. Um, but if by weekend warrior, you mean dock diving or fly ball where you're in a really, really high arousal environment and your dog gets 30 seconds over the course of a whole weekend, that is not the same thing as like what we're talking about with like a four hour off leash hike. Like, yeah. So like different one of the things I do with everybody is, is I do like a little, like I do, I do a little audit of basically like every single thing the dog does over a week. And then we take out everything that's counterproductive and mm-hmm. we add some things that are more helpful. And we try to figure out what is helping that dog specifically and what's most accessible to the people and all that. And then yeah. we figure out a way to arrange all of those little building blocks around their life better. Yeah. Like biscuit has a litter mate who is in a pet home and they, I say pet home, they hike a mountain and camp at the top. And then mm-hmm. the next day hike back down. Like that's very frequently. That's his weekend. Yeah. And during the week he's going for runs with mom or dad. I am like wondering, uh, I'm like, I've got a friend with a really nice toller and they do that. And they, he'd be like about the same age as biscuit. I'm like, do we know? Anyway, well, <laughs> we can talk about that later, but yeah, exactly. I, you know, yeah. Niffler's got one sibling in a SAR home, one sibling in a nose work home, one sibling in two siblings in agility and one sibling in a uh, dock diving, kind of dock diving pseudo pet home. And that was, all of those decisions were based on, like, what the breeder thought the puppies were going to like doing 
from <laughs> watching them and observing them until they were nine weeks old. Um, and yeah, like they're all at very different levels of um, need and being met, but it's working out for all of them because they all have something. Yeah. And if you have like, if again, if you know, like, like he needs the equivalent of hiking up and down a mountain every weekend. Mm-hmm. And like, but he's also like his weekdays are pretty normal pet dog life. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But that works really well for him. And it's really nice when things are sort of thought of as modular like that. Yeah. Because stuff happens like you're, there's going to be like the, yesterday was the anniversary of the time that it snowed here and everyone got stuck on the highway until three o'clock in the morning. Oh my God. Yeah. So big Northwest, everybody please laugh at us. Um, and if something like that happens, I, oh. you know, I, I, things that have happened to clients, like, you know, someone goes to the ER, there's a minor mm-hmm. natural disaster. Uh, the plumbing just completely falls apart in the house and everything is my a nightmare. My dogs and I are gearing up for a 30 hour drive to Wisconsin for Christmas and then 30 hours back. That's going to be either two 15 hour driving days or three 10 hour driving days. And either way, they're not getting much, especially yeah. when we're in North Dakota and it's 20 below with wind chill on our way back. We're not going to stop and do fun yeah, stuff. Yeah. So like, no. there's not even like, even like sit down stand reps are like hard to do in the van. You can do them on the bed and that it works. But when well, I love the idea of thinking about this, like uh, as an athlete, um, for both as an athlete for myself, but also for my dogs, like, yeah, you need these rest days. You need the variety. Like, you know, for, I'm, a, I'm training for a 50 kilometer ski race right now. And the training plan I'm on rotates between like this week is an anaerobic threshold focused week. And next week will be an aerobic endurance week. And the week after that is a rest week. And each week has at least one rest day, but you know, like the amount uh, that happens in between and the duration and the intensity, it all varies between those three types of weeks. And like understanding that and how that moves me towards like my own physical goals is really helpful for thinking through my dogs and honestly, their physical goals. You know, when I got the bike jarring set up, someone commented, they were like, you're going to make a super athlete there. And I was like, a, Good. do you think he's not already? <laughs> Be slightly offended, but also. This dog's glutes. And B, like, that's kind of the point. Um, <laughs> that's fine with me. And I understand that is not necessarily fine for, like, your clientele. Um, but but, they, but they, at the end of the day, like, you know, I looked at these dogs, like, uh, one thing of one dog specifically, Avisla, who's living in a very, like, very dense downtown core in a condo, never really getting off leash outside of, like, a little post stamp um, dog park and stuff like that. The dog was ripped. Mm-hmm. Because he is genetically designed to be an athlete. <laughs> to be ripped. Yes. He is one. Whether or not we would like him to be, whether or not yeah. we are able to deal with that, whether or not we thought we got, you know, whether we knew we were signing up for this. That is an athlete he is designed to be. Look at his blunt muscles. Yeah. And, you know, going back to this idea of like the super athlete as well, like I know from experience, again, trying to make my own body into an athletic body. um, I think people worry that going for a seven mile run every, every other day with your dog is going to create a super athlete. If it worked that way, 
muscularly, I would be a super athlete personally. And you just can't tell. Like, unless you are deliberately increasing speed and doing interval workouts and strength training and, you know, like, unless you're being really deliberate about pushing your body, like, yes, you will acclimate to like a new normal of like, I can run four miles every day, uh, you know, forever at this point, And I have for like 15 years. That doesn't mean that running a marathon is easy for me unless I like really intentionally work at it. So I don't think like that's helpful if you are trying to get your dog to the point of being able to do the canine equivalent of a marathon. Um, or for keeping in mind, if you don't want to get there, <laughs> you know, you're not so, going to accidentally do this. I promise. No, no. And the, the other thing is like, so my, my absolute like least favorite word for anything ever, um, is active. Oh, okay. Tell me more. So I like my, again, my grandmother's breeder. I work with, with some breeders. I interview a lot of puppy people and I also always ask people in their initial consult why they got their dog or what they were hoping that their dog would be, because it gives me a lot of insight about what their goals are, how, how heartbroken they are about their current situation. Like it gives me a lot of insight into where they're at and what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. And the word that I hear consistently, like most of the time is active. I'm active. We want an active dog. Mm Mm-hmm. And I always ask the follow-up question, which is, what does that mean? Yeah. Tell me more. And I've never gotten the same response twice. So sometimes it does mean I want the canine athlete. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be running ultra marathons and I want a buddy to help me do that. (laughs) And then also I really want to go upland game hunting. Yeah. Sweet. Great. Okay. That was a good choice. <laughs> Sometimes it means I live and breathe dog agility mm-hmm. and you couldn't pay me to go for a hike. Mm, 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 mm. Whoa. Yeah. Uh huh. Sometimes different. it means I have a cabin that I go to for two weeks in the summer and I go to the gym three times a week. And other than that, my exercise consists of walking five minutes to take the kids to school. Yes. We ran into this a lot. Useless. And so people say, I want it. I'm active. So I need an active dog. And they don't understand that human active and dog active are not the same thing. Right. So my rough collie up until he started having neurological symptoms caused by, he had a really serious back injury. So even Mm -hmm. with, the really serious life limiting back injury, being a rough collie, having a hawk defect and having autoimmune issues that affected his ability to like build and maintain muscle mounts. He would be perfectly happy when he was like pretty, you know, doing stuff with me. He would do the same walks as the tollers. He would totally hike that mountain with you. He would go for those literally long off leash runs. They were optional he would sleep for the rest of the day very happily. He'd sleep for the rest of the day. Yeah. But 
yeah, he can do those things with you. He he was a great yeah. hiking buddy. He was lovely. He never got himself into any trouble ever. Yeah, he would be so perfect for that third home. Like, yeah, right? he probably wouldn't make that agility person happy, and certainly wouldn't make the gun dog person happy. He's not doing hunting trials. But he can do the thing. And here, like so yeah. often, you you'll see like you know out on the trails or again, we're like here in the Pacific Northwest is like beautiful walking trails, beautiful hiking trails. You will see like little bitty toy breeds out there just yeah. rocking it. I've got a friend with like a Chiweenie sort of thing that he mountain bikes with and the dog rips. Like he's a cool dog. Type mixes underrated quote unquote active barring major physical constraints. Yes. Like doxy legs. Like like really problematic brachyphalic faces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would worry about that third home taking home your average Frenchie. Yeah. But most other breeds are going to be able to rise to most occasions. Yeah. We would do the same. Very when we, I worked with, yeah. When I worked at the shelter, we would get people coming in um, the sh- and I've worked at three different shelters, but I did adoptions the most uh, or behavior consults for adoptions. The most when I was at Denver dumb friends league, and yeah, we would ask, we would do, so if people said they were looking for an active dog, we would ask them what you did after work for the last week or what you did for the last couple weekends. And sometimes, yeah, we would find those people who are like, well, you know, I, I ran up Mount Quandry last weekend and then for my rest day, I went whitewater kayaking. And I was like, okay, well, the dog yeah. can't come whitewater kayaking, but after Quandry, that's and fine. And so like, yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm active. And you're like, you're yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like in Colorado, they're like, I'm just not even like the fastest person in my group. So like, I'm probably going to take the puggle home. <laughs> you're like, oh, actually we've got a, we've got a really a high arousal pity that we'd really like to send with you. Um, but, and then other people, you know, who also really insist are active, you know, they're, they, they, they went to CrossFit and then, uh, then their last weekend while well, the Broncos were playing. So, you know, just kind of did that and like, you know, yeah, you've got an active social life and you are tired, yeah. but none of those things are meeting the dog's needs. Or the um, kids, so, you know, the kids do a million sports. And so, yeah, you are busy all day, every day. Yeah, exhausting. But like, maybe that chow mix is actually going to have that dog. Yeah. That chow mix can do the like occasional hikes that you want to do when those fit into your life. But like, your collie don't need them. Yeah, Versus, and that's yeah, where yeah, like that's where we run into problems is when we when there's a fundamental need to do the thing. Yeah, and we don't have the ability to meet that need. But the other thing is like. It's important to remember also that like really, really high, high tenacity, high drive, high arousal dogs are like, they can be physically uncomfortable to share space with and they can be (laughs) genuinely kind of upsetting to train if you're not really used to it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that we are taught should work for dog training do not. Yeah. And like the way that I deal with like stuff like leash reactivity with my, especially like the hunt point retrieves is not how I was taught to teach leash reactivity to pet dogs. Right? It's just not mm-hmm. what we do. It's very different mm-hmm. because if I do it the first way, they're like, Oh sweet. You want me to stare at everything? I can stare at everything. I'm so good at staring at everything. They, oh my God. Do you see the dog? Do you see the dog? Do you see? I see it's right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. That wasn't what I wanted. I wanted you to eat it off the ground. Actually. Cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it really requires like some creativity. It requires being like comfortable working with the dog as a full and complete being with thoughts and feelings and emotions and strong opinions 
and a whole sensory of experience that is different than ours, it requires that at a much different level than my friend's perfectly like sweet little loss of puppy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a whole different ball game. And so when you're stepping into that space to be a handler, whether it's for, you know, higher level sport or you want to do work with them, you kind of have to get really comfortable working in collaboration Mm -hmm. and working at teaching really high level of skill (laughs) and being comfortable handling them doing things really fast and pushing themselves really hard. Yeah. And it can be really uncomfortable for us. Totally. I, gosh, I think we're going to have to do a part two because I'm going to have to go soon, but I want to like pull on a couple of those threads a little bit more, <laughs> but I'm like, because we didn't even get to the like skills and like suppression and management the way that I wanted to. Um, Cause yeah, I, I think we both could talk about this for 16 hours. So um, well, maybe we just have to do a spinoff podcast. I don't have time for that. So anyway, the, <laughs> This, I think it's really important to, yeah, acknowledge this side of it being potentially upsetting to work with these sorts of dogs. And, like, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, as Niffler in particular has come into his own, and I am realizing that in a lot of ways he's actually more even-keeled than Barley and, like, more thoughtful and more deliberate. And when he was a little younger and, like, had more teenager emotions, I was really worried he wasn't going to be enough um, for what I want. And now that he is like really matured into much pushier and like focused of an adult. So he's a little bit over three now. Um, I am realizing, I actually think I like training him better than Barley because Barley is, he is so much dog and trying to work through, stuff with him is really, really hard. So notice, you know, when I was talking about the breakfast training that I've been doing with them, Niffler is working on these beautiful freeze nose target alerts. I cannot for the life of me train Barley to do that. I am not a good enough trainer to get Barley to do a freeze alert. Because as soon as I tried to build duration, he is flinging it. He is shoving it. He's whining. He's backing up. He's barking at me. Even if I'm literally trying to go from like a second to 1.3 seconds, like I swear Mm -hmm. to God, I am trying Mm -hmm. to split at a very small level and I can't. So we're just adjusting our expectations. The reality is Barley has been doing this job for five years. (laughs) He does not need that flashy social media, perfect sit stare, or like downstairs alert. Both my dogs have a down alert. He finds the damn target and he stays with it. And he is within a couple inches of it every time. No, his nose is not directly on it. But the reality is he's doing Puma and Wolf for like basically the rest of his career. I don't need him to be pointing out like a, a lizard scat that's the size of a grain of rice. <laughs> and if that was something that we needed, A, I could get help. You know, I could talk to Anne McGloon, um, you know, maybe some other like uh, like Robin Grubel, people who have worked with like explosive dogs in particular. I would like get help if I needed him to do that. But also there's a huge part of just being like, you know what? This is the dog I have. He is amazing at 97% of the work that I need done. And rather than driving both of us up the wall with these freeze alerts, mm-hmm. I'm just letting it go. Well, it's, it's so interesting to say that. So like, you know, coming from retriever land, like as anyone who is listening, who's done like, who has worked with retrievers or who is in like the, the field sports world will know. 
just like in a group of dog trainers, you can just like completely blow things up by being like, what is drive? Um, in a group of retriever people, you can go like, so what's better, like hunt tests or field trials? Like, <laughs> but I'll just say, like, oh boy, oh the arguments that we had because the Facebook group. <laughs> Bye. Right. So one of the things that I find hysterical is I have a really dear friend who's been in Tollers forever, and she's like, she's one of those people. She's not a breeder, so most people don't know who she is, but she knows everything about this breed everything mm-hmm. and they've had working retrievers her and her husband for decades and i'm sitting with her at nationals and she looks at me and she goes every single one of these dogs could go hunting tomorrow don't tell any of the breeders i said that <laughs> and it's because the things that we require for a sport context or for some of some of the jobs are beyond functional mm-hmm. so like for me, I'm kind of like, my dog cheats the water a little bit. Like, he makes good life choices about conserving his energy. Mm-hmm. If he pops out of the water earlier because it's five degrees colder today than it was yesterday, I, get I don't want to be mad about that. Like, like, yeah. actually, like, actually, I feel like that's generally kind of a good, like, good, good choices. Like, good he's choices. not known for good life choices. And so, right. like, well, but that is actually, like, a really, really big deal if I care a lot about, like, high-level field tests. Mm-hmm. Right. And what you described with the, the difference between like the, the two brains that you're kind of working with, this dog that is designed to thrive at this high level of work. And then he kind of clicks into that as an adult. And you're like, oh, oh, you're fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, like, I've seen that so, so, so many times with really lovely working dogs and really lovely sport dogs. Mm-hmm. And that is not relying, relying on the arousal. Yeah. That is the brain being able to do the work. That's the foundation skill. Cause the other thing is that you were a better trainer, right? When he was a puppy, cause you did it all before. Yeah. And so I thought he was my first puppy skills mm-hmm. and he's got ability and he's got yeah. clarity of mind to really sink into those problems with you. And it's so fun. It is. It's so fun. Yeah. I don't know like that. It is. It's so cool. And yeah. And I mean, and we talk about this all the time in like our on- online mentorship group with like these, you know, different levels of alerts or like different sorts of discrimination tasks or whatever, like tough training tasks someone in our group is digging into, you know, it's, is this something you actually really need? Do you really need the dog to do this like perfect sit stare alert right now? And like, sometimes the answer is yes, totally. But one of the things I'm constantly reminding, um, like our mentor, our mentees is like, Hey, we're not doing explosives. If your dog fidgets, they are not going to blow themselves up. You're also not going to be in court. Yes. And that is the other thing we talk about all the time. We were, we were just, uh, we've got a book club and we were reading, um, reading, uh, using detection dogs to monitor aquatic ecosystem health and protect aquatic resources. And the first chapter is written by someone who does a lot of, um, water cadaver searches and talking about the way that water currents and airflow can interact to move scent to all of these different places. And you can get alerts or changes of behaviors, like really far from where that body actually would be, you know, 
we're listen, we're you know reading this and thinking about like finding salamanders <laughs> or invasive mussels, and that would be a problem if the dog is alerting and we can't find the salamander. Like, oh, okay, that's tricky for what we do, but we're not looking for someone's missing kid. You know, yeah. like if we can't find something because of the way that the air and the water are interacting, it it may be life and death for those salamanders. It is important. I am not downplaying what we're doing, but it's not someone's kid. It's not and someone's not like it's, no. and yeah, if the dog has an unproductive alert, that then we're like trying to get a search warrant based off of that, or you know, like we're not trying to take. I mean, actually, I shouldn't quite say that because it's we're not necessarily trying to do a search warrant, but sometimes we are then trying to like get uh, like a lot of times dogs are hired to like clear areas in compliance with like the Endangered Species Act for construction permits. Or those sorts of things. So, like, there are times where that still comes into play. But the point is, I am so sorry. We really do have to go because I actually have another meeting in 17 minutes. I'm still wearing my pajama pants. So, <laughs> um, this was so fun, Liza. Remind us where to find people online. And I do think I will be emailing you to try to do a part two about this because I oh, want yeah. to keep talking to you about this. So many more thoughts, yes. Um, okay, yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, you can find me at Focus Dogs on Facebook. That is where I am most often found. Um, and you can also find me at focusdogs.ca. Um, if you want to talk to me, I would love to talk to you. You can email me. Please don't send me Instagram DMs because they keep getting lost, but you can just email me anytime. Always happy to nerd out about these guys. Yay. Okay. Excellent. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Liza. And for everyone at home, I hope you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. As always, you can join our mentorship club and book club that we were just talking about over on Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash canine conservationists. You can join at those for those, for, I think it's the $10 a month level gets you access to both of those. Um, it specifies on Patreon. We also have all sorts of lovely Christmas gifts. I think this is coming out after Christmas, so irrelevant. But if you want to get a I don't know, uh, a Martin Luther King Day present. You could, you know, get capitalism, just buy stuff from us. It helps pay for dog things. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll be back in a week, two weeks. Um, so again, Liza, thank you so much. This is great. It was great to talk to you. Bye-bye.